This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Science writer and professional debunker Mick West is standing by. His new book, Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect. And then in the second hour, folklorist, paranormal researcher, cryptozoologist Ronald L. Murphy Jr. Jr. Uh, joins us to talk about vampires and werewolves and mermaids and goblins and uh, much more. Big paranormal conference happening down in Pennsylvania. Uh, we'll tell you about that. We are getting word uh, over the newswire about a horrible uh, situation down in uh, Toronto's Greek Town neighborhood along the Danforth uh, in the uh, the Logan area. Uh, multiple shots fired. We are hearing about multiple injuries. Uh, in one report, uh, victims spread across several blocks, and uh, we'll keep monitoring that and uh, jump in with some more information as we have it. But this is a, uh, a horrific, horrific report that we're hearing about. Again, multiple shots fired uh, in Greektown along the Danforth. Uh, one report mentioned the Logan and Danforth area. I believe another one mentioned Chester Avenue and, uh, and Danforth. And we are hearing reports of uh, multiple injuries, and again, we do not know the status of these as yet, but we will uh, break in from time to time and give you uh, an update. Horrible situation. Obviously, our thoughts and prayers uh, with the victims down there, and uh, hopefully the police can get a handle on that situation very, very quickly. All right. Uh, let me introduce the boys in the band on the Flying V Gibson guitar technical producer, Ian Robertson. Now, Ian, uh, I think I've mentioned, is in a band called The Grease Marks, and they have a new album out. Uh, please buy the album, donate to Ian's college fund, and that's uh, greasemarks.com. Greasemarks.com. It's a great album. Uh, Ian uh, was uh, playing a few licks on a guitar earlier, and what a talented young man he is. Uh, On the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, uh, my story producer, Albert Vinzel. And finally, on the Hammond B3 live stream producer, Ryan White. 
Uh, now, I have to commend my uh, my next guest for coming on. Uh, he's not going to be preaching to the choir, that's for sure. Some might say he's uh, he's wandered into the lion's den. Uh, many of you, may, in fact, may take great exception uh, to what he has to say. In fact, if uh, the emails are any indication. However, he is here to try and uh, deprogram us, I suppose. The Mick West is a science writer and professional debunker. While he began his career as a video games pr- programmer, his primary focus at the moment is investigating and explaining conspiracy theories. Uh, his new book is Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect. Milk Mick uh, West, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thank you. I'm very good. How are you doing? Glad to be here. Terrific, and we're glad to have you. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've said many times, uh, uh, I don't consider myself to be a conspiracy theorist. I'm a skeptic. Uh, but let me, let's, let's start off with, uh, because I'm sure we're going to find some common ground here. Would you agree or disagree, uh, Mick, with this statement, that believing that nothing is a conspiracy is almost or equally as silly as believing that, that everything is a conspiracy? Absolutely. And in fact, I opened the book, the introduction of the book, with uh, the words, of course, conspiracy theories are real, because obviously there are conspiracy theories that are going on all throughout the world and at all levels of government. We know that people conspire within the government to do bad things, and we know that people in the government do not have our best interests at heart. We know what politicians are like. Uh, A large number of politicians are really just interested in themselves or in uh, their own personal goals, whatever they may be. And so it's very, very reasonable to expect that there will be conspiracies, and it's very, very reasonable to be suspicious of people in power, and I, I encourage that. Good. All right. So, um, I mean, there's and there's no question, first of all, that, that, that people who believe in conspiracies, that, that everything virtually is a conspiracy, in, in even people like myself. We make logical fallacies, uh, lots of them, but... Um, so many articles and books I'm seeing out there in this field now um, are all committing, not all, but many are committing this logical fallacy. They're begging the question. So, for example, and the idea is that the, the opinion they're trying to prove is, is given as if it were already a, a proven thing. So it goes something like this. Uh, and we've all seen these headlines or, or newspaper columns or books. Why do people believe in conspiracies? Or mm-hmm. uh, my month living amongst conspiracy theorists and what makes them tick? Uh, yeah. That's begging the question, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I don't think there is a simple answer. You know why people believe in conspiracy theories. I don't think you can really ask it of uh, an entire population of people. I think it's much more interesting to look at an individual person and ask them what their personal story is uh, as to how they came to believe in conspiracy theories and how they came to believe in the particular conspiracy theories that they happen to be most interested in, because some people are more interested in one than the other. And what I found is the vast majority of people believe in conspiracy theories nowadays because they've watched some compelling videos on YouTube. This is kind of the way people get into conspiracy theories. Now, it was different 20 years ago. People were more into, more into you know, books and magazines. But now, if you ask why do people believe in conspiracy theories, at an individual level, people believe in conspiracy theories, not because there's anything wrong with them, not because they're, you know, they're crazy or they're stupid. And in fact, most conspiracy theorists are really just you know, the same as any other person. They're just people that I think 
have fallen down a, a particular rabbit hole and they kind of got stuck down there. And the way they got down there was via YouTube. Right. But as you established off the top, I mean, conspiracies are real. So and there's a long history, for example, of mm-hmm. and we'll get into this in more detail and we can sort of separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of false flags. But there is I, I think you, we, you, we would agree there is a long history of false flags, whether we're talking about the Reich, Reichstag fire where Hitler, you know, seized upon what was probably the action of one, you know, a Dutch communist. Right. Uh, and then use that to 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 gain emergency powers and 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 said there's a plot a communist plot, that that's a false flag. Um, so, Essentially, that's yeah. Uh, the, 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 I know what you're saying that yeah. the, the, there are real things that are you right. know, real. So many people, you know, I think, that happen. Right. So I think many people believe in conspiracies because of pattern recognition. They see a pattern mm-hmm. throughout history and say, well, why should we believe that it's any different now than it was then? What do you think of that? Well, I think uh, what you've really got to do is look at, uh, you know, compare the things that you're actually talking about. A lot of people talk about Operation Northwoods, mm, and yes. they compare that to 9-11. Now, Operation Northwoods was uh, basically the chief of staff uh, in 1962, I believe, right. uh, asked for excuses they could use to invade Cuba. They said, if we wanted to invade Cuba, how could we do it? And there were various suggestions given, they, they said... Uh, we could like fly planes over and hope that they shoot at us, and if they shoot at us, then we'll invade them. Or assassinate or John Glenn was actually one of them. Do you remember and, that? Assassinate John uh, Glenn. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that was in the Northwoods document. That might have been something that was a bit more uh, uh, esoteric. But you know, the, in the Northwoods document, there are all these proposals, uh, suggestions, ideas for things like pretending a, a plane had been hijacked, or pretending a plane had been shot down, or uh, pretending that. Um, yeah, some something had had happened that didn't actually happen, like pretending there'd been an attack on Guantanamo Bay, right. and then responding to that. And there were also some plots to uh, explode some bombs in, uh, I believe, in Miami and perhaps in Washington. None of these things ever actually happened. Uh, the they made this list, which is a, a ten-page document. I actually have a copy of it right. on my desk here, and they didn't do these things. And none of these things were anything like the scale of 9-11. 9-11, we had 3,000 people, 3,000 American people killed and you know, billions of dollars of damage. And if you compare that to what actually, what actually happened with Northwoods, which were just some proposals that were on a much smaller scale, did not involve killing any American citizens and were never implemented, you're really comparing apples and oranges. And you really can't say that you know, because they did Northwoods, uh, they did 9-11. No, the idea though that they would propose such a thing, first of all, and and I and and thankfully I was I believe it was Robert McNamara who said no, we're not doing any of this. This is absurd. But the idea that you would actually have, you know, uh, members of the uh, the Joint Chiefs actually proposing something like that, I agree. But, but if you're comparing the scale, but the intent, but you've got to think the other things that the Joint Chiefs have proposed. They've proposed mm-hmm. doing preemptive nuclear strikes on Moscow killing millions of people. Right. These are things that they, they draw plans, like contingency, contingency plans, like if we wanted to do something, like if there was going to be a nuclear war, then what should we do? Well, we should take out Moscow, you know, kill 20 million people. Right. That's, you know, it's a, something that was suggested, which is horrific, and they never did, largely because it was a, you know, a terrible idea. And you can look at the Northwood things, Northwood documents, those proposals is a similar type of thing. They were asked to 
you know, brainstorm a bunch of ideas. How can we deal with this Cuba problem? You know, this was just after the Bay of Pigs. They just had this terribly embarrassing thing where the CIA uh, you know, got a bunch of Cuban revolutionaries to try to go back in, and it totally right. failed, blew up in their faces. Right. So they're trying to, trying to figure out what to do next. They say, give me some ideas. Someone goes away, they write this 10-page document, they have a bunch of crazy ideas to do with, like, you know, pretending planes were blown up, they bring it back, uh, McNamara or JFK or whoever says this is ridiculous. And then a year later, we have the Cuban Missile Crisis, well, like six months later, and it was all a moot point anyway. Uh, but, yeah, you've really got to say, like, you know, sure, the U.S. military and the U.S. government, they consider terrible things. But what have they actually done in the past that's on the scale of 9-11? No, that's or true. Or if you want to go the other way, like, what have they done that's on the scale of, say, Sandy Hook? People think that Sandy Hook was faked. Has the U.S. government ever done anything that's vaguely like Sandy Hook before? Well, there's, a, I think, a difference between a false flag and then, but also being politically uh, opportunistic and seizing yeah. upon an event like that, uh, yeah. for example, to push a, a gun control agenda or something, and that certainly goes on. Uh, Absolutely, yeah, and I, I would agree that goes on, and that's, uh, you, you know, we, we divide conspiracy theories into, like, let it happen conspiracy theories and made it happen conspiracy theories, with, like with 9-11, but there's a, a stage that you're referring to, which is the the glad it happened conspiracy conspiracy theory. Right. Yeah, you know, something comes up, and they they immediately exploit it, and because they're exploiting it, that makes people suspicious that they might have planned it. Like if you think, for example, uh, make, Pearl Harbor. Make apologies for the uh, interruption. I'm going to jump in here. We're going to take a time out. There's okay. that music coming up. We'll pick it up on the other side. We're going to find some common ground, Mick and I, and we're also going to disagree on some things, and that's wonderful. We'll uh, come back and uh, continue to speak with the author of Escaping the Rabbit Hole, Debunking Conspiracies Using Facts, Logic, and Respect. Back with more. Stay with us. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, uh, Mick West is here, the author of Escaping the Rabbit Hole. How to debunk conspiracy theories using facts, logic, and respect. And uh, we're agreeing on some things and disagreeing on some things, and we'll continue to do that, no doubt. And I also just want to mention and remind you once again, uh, we are keeping our, our eye on the news wires, and uh, there has been a hor- horrific uh, shooting uh, down in Toronto's Greek town along the Danforth. Uh, all we have right now, definitively, is multiple uh, shooting victims. And uh, according to one report, there are um, injured people scattered uh, for blocks. Now, we don't know exact numbers. Uh, some reports are saying between 5 and 10. Others are saying more. Uh, but we'll continue to, uh, to jump in and give you updates uh, as, uh, as we can. All right. Um, so, Mick, I want to talk about... Um, I want to talk about uh, chemtrails now, because okay. this is a, an area that uh, obviously 
uh, has a lot of people concerned and panicked. We're hearing things like, you know, aluminum particulates in the air, perhaps to mm -hmm. forestall uh, climate change. Uh, some people go so far as to suggest that this is part of a depopulation agenda. But, I mean, is it unreasonable uh, when we have, for, for example, scientists, I think recently at Harvard, talking about the need for geoengineering, Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think the express purpose for that would be to forestall global warming. Uh, we have a, a white paper that came out from the Defense Department a number of years ago called Owning the Weather by, by 2025. And, I mean, we do have that technology. You know, we can seed clouds. We did that in, in Vietnam. Uh, I mean, is it so far a stretch to suggest that this might be going on? For whatever reason, I don't know. I think... Uh I don't think it's a stretch to think that people might want to do it because uh, you know, managing the climate, if we could actually manage the climate and we could mitigate the effects of global warming, that would be a good thing to do. You know, if we could actually stop the negative effects of global warming whilst we try to actually fix it in the background, that would be a good thing to do. Uh, I think where we get to a stretch is where people claim there's evidence is actually going on. Now, it could be that they're doing it, but they're not leaving any evidence. But the things that people point to as evidence, when you look at them closely, they don't actually stand up. Like, for example, people say that uh, contrails should normally dissipate very rapidly behind a plane. And that's simply not true. If you look at any, any book on weather, any book on clouds going back the last 70 years, back to World War II, you'll see they'll all describe contrails and it will say that contrails sometimes can last for a long time and sometimes they dissipate very rapidly. So a lot of the, uh, the things that people base their belief on in this theory don't actually stand up to scrutiny. Uh, there's the other one you mentioned is uh, aluminum. I think a lot of people don't realize that the, the ground that they stand on is just not covered with aluminum, but it pretty much is aluminum. In California, where I am, the, the topsoil, the top th three inches of the soil, contain about 10% aluminum uh, in the form of aluminosilicates, which is a rock. So you've got all these people who get suspicious about aluminum being sprayed. They go out and they test some water in their pond or the, they're testing the soil or whatever, and they find aluminum. And, you know, unfortunately, they don't really understand the chemistry behind the tests and what they're finding is these aluminosilicates in the rock, which are pretty much everywhere. You know, aluminum is completely ubiquitous. So there's a lot of misunderstanding. And I think it's very reasonable to be concerned about things like potential geoengineering, but there really isn't any evidence that it's going on right now. What about uh, some, some people are claiming that, uh, that there is uh, higher levels of things like barium and strontium uh, in the air and in the soil, and they, they are suggesting that that is related to chemtrail spraying? Yes, but again, if you, if you look at those tests, it's very interesting. What they do is they do a test, and they just test for those three things. They test for aluminum, barium, and strontium because they, they somehow got this idea that these are the three things that are some kind of signature of, of geoengineering, even though strontium has never been mentioned in any geoengineering proposal ever, and barium hardly at all, aluminum a little bit more, but even that not so much. But that aside, they just test for these three things, and they find lots of aluminum, they find uh, a bit of barium, and a little bit less of strontium. And if you take those results and you compare them to the percentage of elements, those elements in the Earth's crust, all they're finding is basically the same proportions as you would find in dirt. So what they are doing is 
they're testing water that's got a bit of dirt in, and because dirt has these percentage of elements, they come up with, you know, whatever, 20 parts per million of aluminum and like 100 parts per billion of, of strontium and uh, the other part of, uh, of uh, barium. And they're not finding anything other than dirt. But it's very difficult to explain these to people. Like I've tried to talk to people like uh, uh, Dane Wigington, who's the, the, the guy who runs geoengineeringwatch.org. Yes. I tried to explain this to him. And he basically, he, he shut me down when I tried to explain what the tests actually do and what the chemists, chemical things are. And this is one of the fundamental problems of um, what I do, uh, is that it's very difficult to communicate with people when they don't want to listen to what you're trying to say. Right. And so right. I spent a lot of my trying, trying to get past that, trying to uh, explain to people that I'm just, I'm just a regular guy. Uh, and I, I, I'm not a government shill, and I'm not doing it for money. I'm just telling people what I think is correct. Uh, and I want to listen to what they think is correct as well and try to find some common ground that we can talk about. But uh, it didn't work out with Dane, but Dane Wigginson, but I, I, I learned a lot from that conversation, and I've been trying to communicate better, be a better communicator with other people uh, and you know, explain things that I think that they've got wrong, but... Perhaps well, they haven't. We'll find out. One of the, the the mottos of this show is following the truth wherever it leads, and to me that means if the, if in in the end it means that chemtrail or chemtrails aren't real, then that's what we have to deal with. Um, but uh, just sort of anecdotally here, and I know this mm-hmm. isn't scientific by any means, but when I I remember as a kid looking up into the sky, and I remember big those big, you know tall, puffy, cumulus clouds. Right. Uh, and uh, we had days like that, and then we had these days with just beautiful azure skies uh, as far as, you know, f- stretching from horizon to horizon. And now, a lot of it, I don't see those um, uh, type of cloud formations as much as I used to. What I see is just this kind of this hazy, uh, dull mm-hmm. cloud cover. Um, I, I'm not sure what you, there's a name for that type of cloud, and I can't remember it. There's cirrostratus. Yes, that would be that's called. it. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I see a lot more of that. And, and, and I, I have witnessed this where I've seen a, a, a plane fly over, no, no rain in the, uh, in the forecast. It's supposed mm-hmm. to be a beautiful sunny day. And all of a sudden, these, these contrails, if you will, they, they, they seem like they're spreading out, spreading out, spreading out. More planes go by. They spread out, spread out. And pretty soon, they obliterate the sky. No yeah. more, sun, no more Asia sky. Now I just have this, this, uh, this hazy cloud cover. What yeah. is going on well, there's there? A, there's a couple of things going on there. One is that contrails do spread out to cover the sky, and this is something that has been observed since World War II, and actually since before. And the first contrails spreading out were observed in the uh, the 1920s. This is something they do. Uh, there's a lot more air traffic now than there was in the 1980s. There's also a lot more routes, uh, a lot more. You know, between this city and the city, smaller cities, you get small commuter jets between going between these cities, uh, and th- it is actually a problem. Uh, contrails are a kind of visual pollution, and I think it's perfectly reasonable to be you know, a bit concerned and even upset about this. And you know, it could be something that you know, the problem is people just, people don't really care about it. You know, most people they they see the days recently sunny, and the fact that it's a bit hazy it doesn't really bother them that much. But I I like the pure blue skies myself, and if we could somehow get rid of contrails, uh, that would, that would you know, improve that a lot. 
But another thing you mentioned was that you see contrails before the, the sky gets overcast. Uh, and what's happening there, quite possibly, is that there's a weather front moving in. Now, uh, one type of weather front, a uh, warm front, I believe, I was getting them mixed up, uh, comes in kind of like at the top first. So if there weren't any contrails, what would happen is you would first see some cirrus clouds forming very high up, these very wispy clouds, very, very high up. And then you see some clouds uh, lower down forming. And then you would see the, the, the rain clouds forming like a few hours or maybe even a day after that. So you get this natural progression of things. Now, the contrails just form a bit above where the cirrus clouds form. So when this front moves in, you will see the, you'll see the contrails start forming first. Then you see the cirrus clouds forming, then you see the, the, the alto stratus, and then you see the, the nimbus clouds, the rain clouds, and it starts to rain. So people can actually use contrails to predict the weather in the same way they would use cirrus clouds to predict the weather. And this is something that you know, sailors do. They look up and they see, they see contrails in a certain way. They know that there's a, a front moving and it might start to rain. So there's actual explanations for the things that you're seeing. Is it possible, though, though there, there is some additive in the jet fuel that is legitimately making people sick? Because there seems to be a lot more allergies uh, than I remember as a, as a child, uh, a lot of upper respiratory ailment. And then people are, are saying that when there's a heavy sort of, you know, uh, contrail uh, concentration in their area, mm-hmm. they feel more upper respiratory ailments. Yeah, well, uh, I just saw one of the, the leading contrail scientists in the world, Patrick Minnis uh, from NASA, he just said something about how when it's contrail conditions, when the weather's a, a, a right for contrails to form, his daughter, I believe, uh, gets more, I can't remember what it was, it was asthma or some kind of respiratory, respiratory ailment. But that's because respiratory ailments depend on the weather. So if the weather is kind of wet and cloudy or low pressure, uh, then people's people's breathing is different. And if it's, if it's hot and sunny, then people's breathing might be better. You know, this is why people move to different uh, climates. People move to the desert because the air is better there. And the same thing, like if the weather is, is better, you know, people's health is going to be better. But, you know, you say, you know, some, some things have changed. Some uh, things are more than, you know, like uh, the, the thing about respiratory illnesses it moved from the fourth leading cause of death to the third leading cause of death. Now, there's a, some misinformation going around about that, saying that he actually moved from the eighth to the, uh, to the third. But he didn't move from the fourth to the third. And it only moved from the fourth to the third because it just overtook stroke. It was just below stroke uh, as a cause of death. And other causes of death are moving down because we're getting better treatments for them, the heart disease and cancer, which are the top two. Uh, and that's, there's just been this very minor change. But people promote this very minor change as if it was a significant change. And it's, you know, that's, you know, like I was saying, it's a challenge to actually get the information across to people. I, I will have a chart showing that it, it didn't actually go up, it didn't skyrocket. In fact, it's hardly changed at all. In fact, it actually went down, I think, between uh, uh, 1995 and 2005. But it didn't go uh, down as much- fast as, as strokes. It didn't go down uh, as fast yes, as strokes. Correct. Right. Yeah, strokes went, you know, they both kind of went up and down a little bit because it's very hard to measure these things uh, with any degree of accuracy. There's a bit of noise. You can see very clearly that heart disease goes down, uh, but the, these, these are very quite small uh, causes of death. Uh, and, and it just overtook stroke, so it didn't really go up. And if you hear people saying there's been this massive, you know, 
emergency rooms are full of people with respiratory diseases. It's just simply not true. I would encourage people to look at the actual figures. Uh, one thing that has spiked, and that is uh, um, Alzheimer's. Uh, and there, there does appear to be a link between Alzheimer's and um, aluminum uh, contamination. Yeah. So what's the connection there? Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure what that is. I think uh, one of the uh, suggestions there is that the medication that's alumin- uh, that uh, Alzheimer's patients use uh, has aluminum in it and it accumulates in the brain. Uh, the thing is, though, the, there's a correlation between Alzheimer's and aluminum. However, if we were being sprayed, everybody would be getting the exact same amount of aluminum. It's not like it's falling on this one guy here and he gets Alzheimer's. Yeah, if we were spraying aluminum in the air, uh, it would it would be everywhere and everyone would have exactly the same thing and we could do autopsies on every single person and we would find uh, you know, these, these build-ups of aluminum in the brain. But we're only finding them in the people with Alzheimer's, which suggests that it's not the, the aluminum in the atmosphere that's causing it. It's something else which is causing aluminum to accumulate on the brain, which is associated with Alzheimer's. It doesn't even mean that that aluminum is causing the Alzheimer's. It could be something to do with the, the brain degeneration itself, like letting it be, the aluminum accumulate, or it could be to do with the medication that they're taking containing aluminum or containing things which break down the blood-brain barrier and allow aluminum to accumulate. Um, but yeah, there isn't really... The, the thing about aluminum is aluminum is actually very, very safe. Uh, we, we have soda cans that are made of aluminum that we like stick in our mouths every day. Uh, we, we wrap our food in aluminum foil. The ground, as I said, is 10% aluminum. The dust in the air, we're breathing in aluminum all the time. Uh, the average person gets five milligrams of aluminum just from uh, water and the food that they're eating. It's pretty much everywhere. And if you were spraying a little aluminum out of a plane, it really actually wouldn't make any real difference to the total amount of aluminum that's in the atmosphere because there's so much there already uh, that, uh, you know, it's, it would make a difference in the higher levels where you're blocking out the sunlight, but in the lower levels, you know, you've got lots of dust, so it's not really going to make any difference. On your uh, on your website, are you uh, are you gaining any converts? I mean, are you winning any of these with these battles and convincing people? Are they saying, "Oh, like talking them in off the ledge"? I guess would be the would be the, uh, yeah, the analogy. Definitely, and but what I found though is it's a very uh, it's a long process. It's not something where you can have a, a discussion with someone and convince them. Like say someone's a chemtrail believer and I started telling them all this stuff, you know, they could, they could tell me their arguments and I can explain to them once at a time what was wrong with their arguments. It's very unlikely and probably pretty much impossible that they would change their mind at that time. So what I try to do is I try to focus uh, on more details on individual things. Like for example, the, the thing with aluminum uh, in the ground and the aluminum test. Try not to jump around from one thing to another, but just focus on one thing and try to make sure that I understand what their point of view is and they understand what my point of view is. Because you really have to get that, um, that mutual understanding. You have, right. to get, you have to establish some kind of common ground between you and the other person. That's, how, that's so true. We have, to take, we have to take a quick break, okay. uh, Mick, but that's true. So many people, not only in this arena, but just in politics in general, we're just all talking past each other. We have to sit and listen, and uh, respect, obviously, is, uh, one of, is the watchword. We'll come back and continue to delve into uh, debunking conspiracy theories. Mick West joins us. Escaping the Rabbit Hole here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.
Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't be afraid. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. I know I'll get emails saying you've given in to the dark side. You have a debunker on. He's not exactly a debunker. Make, you know, that's, an, that's kind of a trigger word, right? Debunker, because there are debunkers and there are skeptics. And I consider myself to be a skeptic. Um, why do you use the word debunker rather than skeptic? I use the word debunker because uh, everyone understands what it means if something has been debunked. Like if you say, you know, I, I heard that, you know, this guy got shot and someone else says, oh, that's been debunked, then people understand what that means. It means that someone's looked into it and they've explained that it's false. You know, they've figured out that it's false and, then, you know, they'll, they'll explain to you why it is. And what I do is I investigate things. I see if they are, you know, if the claims are true or not. And then if they are or if they're not, then I'll explain that to people. And usually I'm looking at things like conspiracy theories which tend to be very speculative, and so a lot of the things end up being false. So if I find something that is false, I'll explain it to people. But I'm not setting out to prove the conspiracy theory false. What I try to do is look at the actual individual claims of evidence uh, people make, like uh, with, say, 9-11. One of the claims of evidence is that they found these little iron microspheres uh, in the dust, and then they claim that meant that it must have been uh, thermite being used in the, the demolition of 9-11. Right. And so I, I will examine a claim like that, and I'll try to understand you know, why they're making that claim, what, what they base that on, and then I'll see, does that actually hold up to scrutiny? It, uh, are there other ways that the iron microspheres or whatever could have got in the dust? And so, you know, a skeptic, I, you know, I, 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 a lot of my friends are skeptics, uh, I'm a member of you know the Skeptic Society, but uh, skeptic is more of a state of being than it is an active word. It's not a verb. You don't skeptic things. Right. I don't go and skeptic uh, a claim. When I go and debunk something, though, that's an actual active thing. It's, a, it's something I'm doing. I'm looking into it. I'm investigating it, and I'm explaining it if it's wrong. So I, I just prefer the word, and like I say, I think people understand what it means. No matter what your word you use, people are going to... Uh, have ne- negative associations with it. It's like the word conspiracy theory. Right. Uh, we use the word conspiracy theory to describe things like what we're talking about because people understand what it means. It means you know people are attributing a secret conspiracy by powerful people to significant events, like major events in the world. And uh, usually that comes along with a tendency to believe in other conspiracy theories. But you know, people say that the term conspiracy theory is a negative term and that I'm using it deliberately uh, to denigrate people. But I'm using it because it's the best term that we have available. It's the term that describes what's going on here. I could call, before the the term conspiracy theory came into into significant use in the uh, end of the 1950s, they called people uh, paranoids. Uh, And I think people would prefer not to be called paranoids, and conspiracy theorists is a, is a better idea. Okay, maybe you can, are, you can um, sort of uh, debunk this, or because this has been going on for uh, this idea that the term conspiracy theory was actually mm-hmm. sort of 
coined and pushed by uh, the CIA after the release of the Warren Report because so many people uh, simply didn't believe that Oswald acted yeah. alone. And so that the it was decided, well, we have to discredit certain people, so we're going to call them conspiracy theorists. Uh, right. Go now online and you'll see the memorandum and so forth. Is, yeah. that, is that true or not? Yeah, that's, that, no, it's... It's not true. Uh, there's a, a memorandum by the CIA called Concerning Criticism of the Warren Report. It came out in 1967, uh, which is four years after JFK was assassinated in 63. And uh, in that memorandum, they do not encourage people to use the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist. They use it themselves in a couple of times, but it's just in describing what's, uh, what they're talking about. They say, we are concerned about conspiracy theories coming up, and we need to help, uh, we need to you know, explain things to the conspiracy theorists. They don't suggest using the term conspiracy theorist to make people look bad. And if you actually look at the usage of the term conspiracy theorist, this is something I did for the book. I went through a newspaper archive, and I looked in every year, starting in 1950, all the way up to the, the last day it had, uh, and saw how many times the word uh, conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorists was used. And it basically was starting to ramp up at the end of the 1950s. It was used at that time to discuss uh, the conspiracy theories of the radical right, which would be people like the Klu, Klu Klux Klan and the John Birch Society, people right. who were very uh, anti-African-Americans and very anti-communist and very anti-Catholic. Uh, people like that. And there, there was a lot of conspiracy theories going on then at the end of the 1950s. And it continued at a fairly low level. And then it kind of like got a little bump in 1963 when uh, JFK was assassinated. And then it kind of went back down again and it leveled up uh, after that. And in 1967, when the report was issued, nothing happened. The usage didn't really change. It uh, stayed fairly steady. And in 1968, there was the assassinations of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert uh, Kennedy. Uh, bumped a little bit then. But after that, it just basically returned back to pretty much the level it was before that. And it didn't really start going up until the, uh, the 1990s. Uh, it really got to... Uh, uh, I, the very first figure in my book is, uh, is showing this. It got a big peak in 1997. Uh, and the reason it got that was there was a film released called Conspiracy Theory. Right. With Mel Gibson. Gibson. Yes. And uh, also the Men in Black films were released at the time, and there was uh, people talking about that as well. But it certainly uh, is being, yeah, it has been weaponized now, I mean, for better or worse. I mean, it is being used in many cases. Uh, I, I, I would disagree with that. I would disagree with that. Uh, I think, you know, I understand why you're saying that, because... Uh, people have this negative association with conspiracy theorists. Uh, and if someone says you're a conspiracy theorist, that is that tinfoil hat type thing. So people think that people are using it in a negative way. But I think, unfortunately, people are just using it as a, basically a simple descriptor. And it doesn't matter what term you would use. Uh, there was there's a book by... Uh, Lance de Havren-Smith, I think his name is. Well, sorry, uh, for the interruption, Mick, we're going to pick it up on the other side. This was a short segment. We'll come back and we okay. will, uh, we'll drill down on that a little bit more. All right, Mick West stays with us. Just a reminder, coming up after the top of the hour, we'll uh, talk with the cryptozoologist. Ronald L. Murphy Jr. will be with us. The Conspiracy Show returns right after this. Follow the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Beaming across North America, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Just want to give you an update on the uh, shooting situation in the Greek town. Uh, We are hearing now, this is uh, CP24 reporting, up to eight injured, including a child. The injured have been uh, taken to various trauma centers. And I'm not sure if we can confirm, but reports say, reports say the shooter uh, is dead. But I don't know if that's confirmed 100%. So that's uh, the latest. Eight injured, including a child. No confirmed reports of fatalities. Um, But there are reports that the shooter is dead. Okay, back to uh, our conversation with Mick West. And uh, he is the author of Escaping the Rabbit Hole. Uh, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Fact, Logic, uh, and um, respect. Now, we were talking about the term conspiracy theory, and you had another point that you were you were mentioning, uh, and then I wanted to add to the, something to that as well. So go ahead, Mick, uh, just before I interrupt yeah, you. A, sorry, there's a, there's a writer, Lance de Havren-Smith, who write, wrote a book on conspiracy theories. I think it's called uh, American Conspiracies. And he, he suggested this, this theory, the conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory, that the term conspiracy theory was invented by the CIA. And he says that we should we should... Instead of using the term conspiracy theory, we should use the term uh, state crimes against democracy, SCAD, yes. SCAD. Uh, and he thinks this would be a better term. Uh, but all that's going to happen if he did actually get people to start using this term is that conspiracy theorists would start being called SCADers. <laughs> people, would, people would take the term that you know, people have chosen for themselves right. and they would apply it to these people. And it would seem like it's a derogatory term. Even if people are just using it in a purely descriptive way, because so many conspiracy theorists are kind of like out there, uh, it naturally gets on this this negative connotation. Now, I I divide conspiracy theories, everybody divides conspiracy theories into two things. The sensible conspiracy theories, which seem very reasonable and are probably true, and then all the ridiculous disinformation conspiracy theories. And there's this line of demarcation that everybody has. And everybody hates all the conspiracy theories that are on the other side of the uh, line of demarcation because those conspiracy theories make them look silly. Yes. They think they're being very sensible with their beliefs about whatever it is, if it's like 9-11 or chemtrails or uh, JFK. They think they're being very sensible and very science-based. But then they hear about other things like the flat earth conspiracy theory or, or some of the crazier false flag conspiracy theories. And they think, you know, those people are making us look bad. I don't want to be associated with them. But if, we're, if, we're good, we're good, if we have a term for this type of thing, you can't just say everybody gets to say this is a conspiracy theory and this is nonsense or this is a scab and this is nonsense. You know, we're going to have this term for conspiracy theories. And you may as well call it conspiracy theories because it's a nice, simple, descriptive uh, term. And if you t- take the term scab, you're just going to get called scatters in the same way that, no, that uh, 9-11 that's, truth that's, supporters are called truthers. That's fair. But here's the problem. And, and um, where it's problematic is when it is used to stifle debate or mm-hmm. healthy, rigorous um, inquiry. And uh, I'll give you an example. 
uh, up here in Canada, we have something called the Bank of Canada Act. It's, uh, this is what was created when the Prime Minister nationalized our Bank of Canada. So now it's owned in common by all citizens and all the various levels of government could borrow from the, the central bank. I, I don't want to get too deep into the, the weeds here, but the point is when this is now being ignored by politicians and we are now we are now uh, borrowing from international lenders and paying interest and and this is responsible for uh, you know a large portion of our debt accumulated uh, compound interest um, where before we could borrow at low interest from the Bank of Canada someone who is f- taking this fight to the uh, the various levels of uh, you know the federal court the Supreme Court to challenge the government on this mm-hmm. um, this is a respectable lawyer. He he went up to the prime minister and asked him about this, and the prime minister says, "I'm sorry, I don't engage in conspiracy theories." So this is an example of how it is being used by people who who, who um, don't even necessarily even uh, understand the situation in, in its entirety. Right. They just they just want to stifle and and move on, and that's how it's often used by people who think, don't have a, even a modicum of intellectual curiosity. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree that's, that's a problem. But the prime minister could equally have said, I, I don't indulge in uh, baseless speculation. Uh, he just took a, picked a term which happened to be you know, perhaps a little bit more insulting uh, when used in that context. Well, because, uh, because, but, it's because the word, he, he chose those words because he knows that that's the, the quickest way to, to end a debate right, and discredit if somebody. If he said, like, complete nonsense or baseless speculation, that right. essentially gets the same thing. You know, if, if you said I don't uh, indulge in uh, paranoid delusions, that would be even worse. So he's kind of pitching it at a level that was a bit insulting, but it isn't perhaps as bad as he could go. He could have said far worse things, right. but he picks uh, conspiracy theories. And, but, and, and uh, I find reporters use this, do the same thing often. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and again, it's like, well, okay, I might be wrong, but at least I have... I have sort of delved into this. I've examined it. Yeah. Maybe my fact is wrong over here. Maybe this doesn't add up. But at least, you know, people are out there. They're pulling on threads. Uh, they're, yeah. they're displaying some intellectual curiosity, and they're and they're doing this because there's this vacuum created by a mainstream media that has sort of gone down market. They don't pay very well anymore. They're you know they're mm-hmm. hiring reporters who many of them can't cover a, f- a house fire adequately, uh, yeah. and so this vacuum I, I, has been filled I, by. I kind of agree with you there. Yeah. There's, there's, it's a mistake to uh, push people away and pigeonhole them and say you're just a conspiracy theory. Because a lot of people who you know, are interested in these topics, they have very valid concerns. Like people who have concerns about the monetary system in Canada or the U.S. or wherever, there's lots of very real things to be worried about. You know, people who have concerns about what happened on 9-11, there's lots of very valid things to be worried about. And people who are concerned about chemtrails there are things to be concerned about with ge- geoengineering and and even with contrails and plane exhausts. So I think, you know, it's part of the reason why I try to debunk in the sense of getting rid of the things that are incorrect, the claims that are incorrect, is so people can focus on these real issues. If people are making baseless claims about uh, whatever the interest rates or the, the, the financial system, the monetary system, it takes away from the actual issues that are actually going on. So if there is a conspiracy theory that is false in a, a topic, I think it's worthwhile getting rid of that conspiracy theory, but excising it in a way that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't like, tar everybody with the same brush. Right. 
Now, when it comes to 9-11, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. when you focus on controlled demolition, uh, that, you know, for me, the fact that, or the, the possibility that, that elements of, of 9-11 were, in, were an inside job doesn't, doesn't live or die with controlled demolition. That's, that's simply the means. And sometimes we focus on yeah. the means more than, you know, uh, as a friend of mine says, that's like counting the blades of grass on the grassy knoll. Uh, I would agree with you. They they may very well have flown planes into the the building, and that may have caused a structural weakness and a collapse. The question is, you know, how did they, how did they get, how how did they manage to do that and mm-hmm. penetrate the most you know sophisticated defense system in the world? So then you start tugging on threads again. But to say, you know, that that it's it wasn't controlled demolition and it wasn't an inside job. I mean, I think there's lots of evidence to suggest that it was an inside job. It doesn't necessarily. Well, I, I just say that it wasn't controlled demolition. Right. I don't. I right. don't normally go into the other theories because right. I you know, don't uh, really have enough information about them. I look at the controlled demolition stuff because it's stuff that I'm familiar with. The physics. I did a lot of uh, physics programming back in the games industry, so yes. I, I understand the math and the science behind that. Uh, so. I think, you know, if it, say it was a control, say it was um, an inside job of some sort, so the CIA was some, in some way behind it, I think that what I'm doing would help reveal that because I am removing the distraction of controlled demolition because I don't think controlled demolition stands up to scrutiny. Like all these claims of evidence that architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth make, they don't stand up to scrutiny. And I think that if there was actually something going on, there was something nefarious in the Bush administration uh, behind that. That would need to be, uh, we need to figure that out. And we can't do that if everybody's spending all their time saying the buildings were blown up because you're not going to get to the real story if all you're focusing on is this nanothermite nonsense. Right. The, the interesting thing, or ironic maybe, I don't know, but the, the idea that if one believes in the official version that, you know, operatives within al-Qaeda, you know, that were orchestrated by Osama bin Laden, they were able to penetrate the, the defense uh, system. That is a conspiracy, right? The question is then, okay, who's, who's committing conspiracies? Is it just those people over there? Yeah. Uh, and does that mean that we're not capable of, you know, our government is not capable of committing conspiracy? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's ironic that they're so... Oh, yeah. Well, it, it's in all of these things that Everything is a conspiracy one way or the other. If you look at a lot of the things in politics now, like, uh, uh, I'd say, Obama being a Kenyan, if if he is a Kenyan, there's this huge conspiracy to cover that up. And if he's not a Kenyan, then there's a conspiracy to make it seem like he's a Kenyan. So someone is lying on one side or the other. You know, if there are weapons of mass destruction uh, in Iraq, like uh, there either there were or there weren't, if, someone, if they were, then... People who said there weren't are lying. So, you know, there, there, there are always conspiracies. But the conspiracy theories we're talking about are generally the ones uh, where the suggestion is someone in, in power is doing it, some very powerful people that, uh, you know, in, the, in a smoky room somewhere. So I wouldn't say it's the same thing, like Al- Al-Qaeda plotting things isn't really a conspiracy theory. Uh, it's uh, an actual conspiracy. Well, um we're just about out of time, and I, I wanted to get around to the flat Earth. Uh, may, I'll have you back, and we'll do, we'll do that. I'm not a flat earther. I mean, the, the, this is okay. one that kind of bothers me. Uh, but I will entertain people, you know, if they want to try and mm-hmm. convince me that the Earth is flat. I want to, yeah, just, me too. The, the, me the too. one final point I want to make um, um, has to do with 
one of the main arguments is that conspiracies can't happen because it's too, it would be too hard to keep something a secret. And my counter to that has always been the Manhattan Project. You had mm-hmm. something like 300,000 scientists working on that. And even, yeah. I, I mean, I've known pe- I know people who, who worked on the Manhattan Project. Their wives yeah. didn't even know. So, I mean, yeah. it, is possible, bring that up. it is possible to keep big secrets secret. It is, but the difference there is the Manhattan Project was, uh, wasn't something that people could see. It wasn't something that people were investigating. If you compare it to the 9-11, say, uh, you know, the Manhattan Project was like a town somewhere off in the mountains where people were sequestered and no one knew what was going on in this town. 9-11 was planes flying into buildings and buildings collapsing and thousands of people dying. And then the entire FBI uh, investigating that. That's a lot harder to cover up than uh, something in the desert that no one really knows anything about. Everyone saw 9-11. All the, the law enforcement officers that were there, they were investigating it. They wanted to find out what happened. You know, tens of tens of thousands of people knew someone who died on 9-11. It's not like you know, it was a secret that it was covered up. Those people did actually die. We knew that they happened. Uh, and you know, half the FBI were investigating at the cost of billions of dollars for the next uh, you know, five to 10 years. So it's a very different thing to a wartime secret that no one knew anything about, to this huge event that killed thousands of people and involved tens of thousands of other people that was right there in the open, there on live TV. It's a completely different thing. And I understand you know, people saying, oh, a lot of people were involved, you know, therefore it's covered up. But if you look at what you're comparing, a, town, a secret town in the desert is not the same thing as the Twin Towers falling down. Well, it wasn't a, a little town in the desert. I mean, it was up in Chalk River. Uh, it, was, it, was, sure. it was spread all over. Operate, I mean, the Manhattan Project wasn't just a little town in the yeah. desert. It was, it was wartime, though, so it was a lot easier to uh, keep tabs on things like that uh, and shut down the newspapers. Mick, I hope you'll join me again. I've enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. I, uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I think it's great that we do actually get to talk, uh, people who are on somewhat different sides of the fence. I think it's an important thing that we do actually try to get common ground, even if we don't agree on things initially. 100%, especially in this day and age. We have to stop talking past each other and start talking to each other. Uh, And we will again. Thank you, Mick. Thank you. Escaping the rabbit hole. When we come back, Ronald Murphy. He's been fascinated with the paranormal since he was a child, and he'll be appearing at a paranormal convention down in Pennsylvania. There's a haunted location. We'll talk about that as well. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zuma Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. Hi to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Uh, those of you who utilize the Conspiracy Show and Zuma Radio apps, uh, both fabulous and both free downloads. Listen anywhere in the world. Crystal clear audio. 
uh, the Conspiracy Show and Zuma Radio apps. Uh, those of you watching the live YouTube stream tonight, and we are live on YouTube again this evening after uh, some absence. Uh, and hello to all of you in the, uh, the live chat who join us every week without fail. However and wherever you're listening and watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. A folklorist and uh, cryptozoologist, paranormal researcher, Ronald L. Murphy Jr. is uh, standing by. I just want to give you an update if you're just joining us uh, sometime after 10 o'clock tonight in the Greektown neighborhood of Toronto along the Danforth. Uh, I believe it began around Logan Avenue. We had uh, reports of shots fired, multiple shots fired. We now know. Uh, This is, I believe, confirmed eight injuries, eight people injured, including a child. They have been taken to trauma centers, Uh, and we are hearing reports. I'm not sure at this point if it's still, uh, whether it's confirmed that the shooter is, in fact, dead. Uh, We're trying to confirm that for you, but I believe uh, uh, CP24 is now reporting eight people injured, including a child, uh, all taken to a trauma center. At one point, they were reporting that there were victims sort of scattered um, for blocks, which makes it sound, you know, that, that uh, there are, you know, hundreds of injured, but no, eight is what we're being told at this point, including a child. Uh, and and um, I'm not sure if we're confirming at this point that the shooter is dead, uh, but I, we will let you know once we hear definitively. But uh, uh, nonetheless, a horrific, horrific night uh, in Greektown and uh, our thoughts and prayers uh, with the victims, not only those uh, that are injured, but also those who just who witnessed this and obviously will be uh, traumatized uh, for um, probably forever. Uh, so um, our, we commend the uh, the police for, for uh, apprehending an, this individual or at least uh, stopping this individual before it got any worse. Obviously, bad enough. Eight people injured, including a child, in uh, our Greek town tonight. Very, very sad. All right. Uh, Ronald Murphy Jr. is uh, with us. He has been fascinated with the paranormal since he was a child. And this passion continued with him. Uh, He researches the paranormal from a multidisciplinary perspective. He delves into the creation of archetypes of various cryptids and phenomena. He's researched throughout the U.S. and the U.K. He currently is the co-host of two radio programs carried on the Paranormal U.K. radio network, The Crypto Realm and Inside the Goblin Universe. And uh, we'll we'll talk to him about his series of uh, books, the On series. Uh, where he talks about vampires and goblins and so forth. Ronald Murphy Jr., welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Uh, I'm very good, sir, and I want to tell you how pleased I am to be on your show, but I also want to extend my prayers uh, to everybody up there in Toronto with the tragedy that's unfolding. I, I have to tell you and your listeners, Toronto is truly one of my uh, favorite places on Earth. Uh, uh, just, just a lot of good, genuine people up there, and I'm wishing the best. Thank you so much for that. Uh, We should mention that uh, you are going to be one of the featured speakers at HillCon this fall at Hillview Manor's Paranormal Convention. That's in, is that in Pennsylvania, correct? It it is, that's right, that's right. It's it's around um, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. So uh, from where I'm speaking right now, I'm not very far, probably about a four or five hour trip from you guys. Uh, now, I um, recently spoke with uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, a good friend of the program, and uh, she recently co-authored a book about uh, southwestern Pennsylvania, Green County, 
uh, and all of the things going on in Greene County. It's it's it sounds like the Skinwalker Ranch on steroids. What is it about Pennsylvania? Uh, UFOs and Sasquatch and all sorts of strange cryptids, lobster aliens, and you name it. Uh, it's all right there to be found in Pennsylvania. What is it about about the, uh, that state? You know what? That, that's one question, and that's really what drives my research. Um, there were was a rash of Bigfoot sightings in the uh, mid 1970s, and I was just uh, a young a young boy at the time. You know, I was in elementary school, probably in second or third grade, and um, you know, my mother was fascinated by this subject, uh, so she would take uh, my brother and I out looking for you know where these Bigfoot reports were taking place, and this was along the Chestnut Ridge of uh, Pennsylvania. But that's part of the Appalachian. So uh, whenever uh, uh, Rosemary's book uh, just came out, uh, Green County is a part of that whole Appalachia. Uh, and if you look at the map, uh, that also covers places like Point Pleasant, where the Mothman is sighted, and various other really strange locales where the unexplained or this high strangeness seems to be uh, an epicenter. Um, now, I am within sight of the uh, Chestnut Ridge right now. I can actually see it from my porch as I'm talking to you here. Um, but uh, that has been called the Twilight Zone of Pennsylvania uh, since the 1970s. But, yeah, a lot of really weird things are going on. So, as a researcher, what do you make of it? You know, um, why are we lucky? Um, a lot of the uh, topography and the geology of this area and the Appalachians is rather unique. A lot of very hard or a lot of sedimentary stone. We have a lot of limestone in our area, a copious amount of uh, natural springs and running water, and all the you know essentials, the, the prerequisites that's needed uh, for traditional hauntings, as a lot of people would say. And there are a lot of hauntings around this area. But it also seems to be a magnet for the cryptids and the UFOs as well. Uh, so much so that you know one of the uh, one of the theories uh, proposed in the 1970s that um, extraterrestrials would visit this particular area to draw energy from the natural rock formations and the other natural resources around here because we have abundance of coal as well and some some pockets of oil. So there's a lot of different theories that's going on there. I am 49 years old right now, and I'm still pursuing what is behind this high strangeness of Pennsylvania. Uh, you mentioned uh, Chestnut Ridge. Of course, that's the title of one of your books, Unexplained World of uh, the Chestnut Ridge. Um, now, there's also a lot of, sort of Indian burial mounds uh, burial mounds in, in Pennsylvania. There were a lot of interactions between some of the early uh, colonists and uh, various uh, Native American tribes, so a lot of blood in the soil, um, a lot of disturbed Indian burial mounds. Do you think that has anything to do with it? Well, absolutely. If we're looking in terms of hauntings, um, this is a very haunted region because of what you had just said. Um, this is where the French and Indian War took place. Uh, this is where you know George Washington made a name for himself. Um, and it was also the site of, you know, this was an indigenous native population here of probably 15,000 people. Uh, and then after the French and Indian War, we see the numbers uh, dropping down to around 1,000 people uh, with, within just, you know, a, a few years' time. So there was complete devastation. And then following the French and Indian War, you have a process of genocide going on as well. So absolutely, if we talk about hauntings being the... the um, 
the end result of bloodshed. Absolutely, this area is, is prime for that. Um, but also going back to the Indian burial mounds, this was the site of the mound builder cultures. When we talk about the woodland, uh, the woodland tribes and things of that nature, so when we think of the Adena with the great serpent mound or like the seat mound from the Hopewellian culture and all these great earthen works, these are the same people that were living in western Pennsylvania as well. Now we have a few uh, Indian mounds in Pennsylvania, but the majority of them have been plowed over. And I've actually interviewed people uh, saying that they remember whenever they were children, their grandfather just plowing through these Indian burial mounds, you know, uncovering, you know, artifacts and bones and things, and just turning it over because it was part of the clearing process uh, to plant, um, you know, plant an agricultural crop. Nobody even thought about these kind of things with any kind of attitude or any kind of respect. Uh, and whenever we look at that, I mean, all all cultures around the world believe in the sanctity of the dead and the, the necessary uh, purpose of burial. And whenever that's disrupted, uh, you know, again, cultures around the world talk about um, the dead not being able to be settled. And I think a lot of that is going here in western Pennsylvania as well. Uh, so do you do you think then that, um, that there's some sort of, I don't know, spirit protector of, of these burial mounds that is being released? Uh, and, and let's say, so, for example, someone pockets one of these um, artifacts found in a burial mound, takes it home, and then all of a sudden they have, I don't know, shadow people showing up at their place. Is, it, is yep. the connection that clear? Yeah, you know, I think that there is a connection going on there. So we'll have to kind of uh, go roundabout and kind of, like, connect the dots. But when we talk about um, Indian burial mounds uh, and the idea of guardian spirits, uh, you know, I immediately think of things like the uh, the dogman or the, the the werewolf kind of uh, figures, um, the beast of Bray Road. Uh, these werewolf type creatures uh, were always located very near um, burial mounds. A lot of them were even seen in and around burial mounds. And if we talk about the history of these types of things, if we go back even to ancient Egypt, you know, Anubis, the god of the dead, the jackal-headed god, is this kind of dogman figure that presides over the realm of the dead and burial places. Whenever I research uh, in, in, in the area, especially with, with the dogman, because there is a, a rash of dogman sightings very close to where we're speaking right now, um, there is also that connection with um, ancient Indian settlements as well. Um, I, I am not uh, I'm sensitive in any ways, but I do employ uh, psychics and mediums uh, whenever I go about this. And um, uh, one particular area, three different psychics all had commented on an Indian protective spirit in that particular area, and that is an area of not only ghostly sightings, but also UFO sightings, Bigfoot sightings, and dogman sightings. So whenever we talk about protective spirits or spirits of the land, it's not just one type of manifestation. I believe it could be many, uh, and, and what we're dealing with is something that is linked between man and nature. It's kind of uh, this harmonious link that goes back to a culture that was very in touch with nature, but we, you know, as civilized people, uh, or so-called civilized people, have kind of broken that link and forgotten about uh, that, that 
sensitivity that we once had with the wind. But Ronald, I, I got to jump in here. An excellent question that you uh, proposed there. Okay, that, I got to jump in here, Ronald. We're going to take a time out. We'll come back. Ronald Murphy, the author of On Mermaids, On Wild Men, On Dog Men, Unexplained World of the Chestnut Ridge, Gypsy Heart, a poetry collection. Haunted History, Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania. Back with more of our conversation when The Conspiracy Show returns. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We'll get back to our conversation with Ronald L. Murphy Jr. in just a moment, talking paranormal. Uh, Another update. And uh, now we're hearing nine injured, not including the deceased shooter. That has been confirmed. The the, the shooter is uh, deceased. The... um, the tally, though, is nine injured. No fatalities among the victims. Thank God, at least at this point. We'll continue to pray that that uh, remains. But um, again, our thoughts and prayers with the uh, those injured, those who uh, were uh, traumatized, witnessing this horrific event in Greektown tonight. Again, nine injured, uh, including one child. And the shooter is now confirmed dead. All right. Uh, we are speaking with Ronald L. Murphy, and he'll be uh, down in Pennsylvania for a, uh, a paranormal conference. Give us the details on that again, Ronald. I know it's uh, happening this fall in September. Uh, That's right. It, it, it's called HillCon. Uh, it's been going on for a number of years, and it's a great haunted location for one thing. Um, but what also they do is they bring in presenters that are going to talk about hauntings, or in my case, we're going to be talking about cryptids and various other paranormal phenomenon for the, a one-day event uh, that takes place, as you've said. Uh, uh, I'm, I'll look up the date for you. I, I'm terrible with dates. So Septem- I do not have sorry, my, September my in front of us, but yes. Uh, September 22nd. It's going to be an exciting thing. I have actually attended it before as a guest, and it, it's really an interesting um, architectural place, to tell you the truth. Uh, very creepy, uh, uh, full of all kinds of stories, uh, you know, anecdotal and some, you know, first-hand accounts of hauntings there, uh, but also a great forum to hear a lot of different perspectives on the supernatural and the paranormal. Right. It's September the 22nd. It's 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. And again, this is a, this takes place at a manor, Hillview Manor, uh, and that's um, in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Again, September 22nd. 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. And it's hauntedhillviewmanor.com is the website. hauntedhillviewmanor.com Now, uh, you were talking about uh, dogmen. And uh, you mentioned the, the Beast of Bray Road, which is in Wisconsin. So obviously, I mean, this, is, uh, this is a fairly widespread uh, phenomena, sightings of this particular cryptid. Uh, dogmen. Now, do you believe that these are are these skinwalkers? Are these uh, are these just some heretofore unrecognized, uncategorized uh, mammal? What do you think is going on with the dogmen? 
Uh, another great question. I, I, I appreciate it whenever the host is up on top of things <laughs> like this. So, so this is great. So are we talking about something that's, you know, supernatural, that has the ability to shapeshift? Uh, or are we talking about, you know, some sort of cryptid, some sort of uh, link uh, to the Pleistocene or something? And that's a great question. And I cannot put my finger down on this because there are some cases uh, from like the late 1800s in Montana of a beast that was was uh, preying upon uh, wildlife and livestock uh, that was killed, and it seems to be remarkably similar to something like a dire wolf or some sort of large canid uh, from the from the um, from the you know the ice age. Uh, in that particular case, I think that we're dealing with it, it, the same way that goes with the beast of Gévaudan that was uh, you know terrorizing the uh, the French countryside in the uh, the the mid to late. Uh, 1700s. That seems to be some sort of, you know, predator that has a basis in um, reality. It has a basis in biology. But then we're dealing with things that, you know, is not quite so easily to explain. You know, um, interviewing witnesses that see these creatures uh, bipedally walking down um, a, a road at night and feeding out of garbage cans, you know, it seems to have this this sort of, getting back to the term, high strangeness to it, that it seems to be this amalgamation or chimera of man and beast. So, you know, what are you to make about this? I mean, is there a transformation going on? Um, I have done interviews on people that do claim that they do transform. Um, and just like you would see in the movies, they, it, it doesn't seem to have any kind of a lunar activity associated with it, but it's almost as if it's um, um, uh, just a part of their life. Uh, one particular individual that I interviewed said that he could feel it coming on, and he had to leave his girlfriend and his girlfriend's uh, child because he was afraid that he was going to hurt them. And he went to this very isolated area of western Pennsylvania, and um, he transformed into this creature. And while he was in this very isolated area, he ran into another creature just like him that was uh, uh, residing in that same area. So these are very interesting stories. You know, what are we supposed to make of these? Is this a psychological projection by somebody that has some sort of mental illness? It's possible. But the more that I interview people, the more it seems there's some sort of basis in fact that there is something indeed going on. And, of course, I research from a historical point of view. And if we would look back at tells from the Middle Ages, um, we do see the idea of some sort of transformation going on. Um, and um, some of the cases are very disturbing. There was uh, uh, one gentleman uh, in uh, in Germany uh, that claimed to transform into a uh, into a, a, a wolf, and he obviously was able to transform into something because he was able to take down cattle, uh, but he also preyed upon human beings as well. So there's some sort of supernatural involved with many of these uh, transformation cases. So I think, you know, if you would, if you, I actually wrote a book on the subject called On Dogman, Tracking the Werewolf Through History. And I look at these different cases where some of them appear to be, you know, cryptid-related, some to be appear to be nothing more than folklore, but there are a lot of cases out there that really does not fit any particular, um, you know, heading. 
and you kind of put that out over there and just you know kind of shrug and say, I have no idea what's going on. It had to be a werewolf because you're left with that conclusion at the end of the day. Uh, what about the idea that uh, that these are a manifestation of the human mind? Uh, I think that the Tibetan monks had a had a system of you know mind power. They were called tulpas. The idea that there is a psychic connection between even UFOs. Uh, in fact, there is um, uh, a gentleman that, uh, that up here, you noted Canadian ufologist Grant Cameron, uh, who has um, who has talked to people who were allegedly part of, you know, the Majestic 12, uh, this group of uh, government uh, ufologists sort of that are, that are charged with trying to keep a lid on the secret, the UFO secret. And, and they have told him that if you want to understand the UFO phenomena, you have to understand ESP. Is there, is there a connection, do you think, then between uh, ESP and, and many of these cryptids? Um, well, you know, the, the human mind is capable of very many things. And in the end, it is what forms our reality. Um, it's a it's a a blank canvas on which we project whatever we want. And you know, if if it is real to us, that is part of our you know tangible reality around us. And it might not be the same reality for other people. The idea of tulpas has has really um, interested me for a number of years. That if enough people think about something, um, that this something can take on an can can derive out of this energy. Uh, very interesting. Um, but what has happened to me as of late, uh, because I do a lot of research into fairy folklore as well, um, and what has happened to me as of late, I've kind of flip-flopped now, and I'm now of the belief that there may indeed be elemental energy out there uh, that resides in nature that is capable of projecting images into us. So kind of like a, a, a reverse of that. Um, and this is taken, you know, made probably two decades of research into this, uh, but whenever we look at medieval encounters of fairies, we, we hear the term of glamour, and this was a way for the fairy to kind of mask what it truly was. And the more I look at the term, the more it seems that there is this idea of a psychic influence, um, but it's not us projecting it ourselves onto it. It's projecting itself onto us. There is something to be said for that. Um, we don't have any clear pictures of Bigfoot besides the Patterson Giblin film. We don't have any clear pictures of werewolves, but people still claim to see them. Is so? Is it possible that we are dealing with an intelligent energy uh, that is, you know, as 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 real to this, you know, natural world as a human being uh, that is capable of, you know, interfering with the way the human mind thinks? Um, it sounds a little outlandish, but if you look at cultures from around the world, even with the cultures of the Aborigines of Australia dating back to, you know, 65,000 years ago, they have the idea of this dream time, this time out of time that's inhabited by so many different types of spirits with this capability of interacting. And the idea of the shaman throughout history is trying to be the conduit between one world and the other. Is it possible that when we talk about the, the jinn, which is very popular in the Middle East, or, you know, when we talk about fairies and European folklore, are we talking about the same type of, of earth energy that is capable of projecting images onto the human mind? Now, the more I research into this, and as, I, as, as you said at the, at the opening, I look at this linguistically, I look 
put this psychologically, sociologically, in as many different ways as I can. It does indeed seem that there's something out there that is capable of influencing uh, uh, us so much so that it's become an archetype and it's embedded into our DNA. How about for you personally? Uh, have you had a, a, a paranormal encounter? Have you seen uh, a Sasquatch or a UFO? Or what, what has been your personal experience? Um, as far as... Uh and, you know, I still, I still get uh, goosebumps thinking about this. Um, I've always been interested, as I said, since I was a kid. Um, but I did not have any kind of encounter until I was in my mid-20s. And um, there was something going on outside of the house, this howling. Uh, that's all I could describe it. You know, I was an athletic person at the time. Uh, my brother, who was two years younger than I am, he was an athletic person at the time. And we heard this sound that always occurred between 12 and 3 o'clock in the morning. So one night we said, you know, if this happens again, we're going to go out and see what it is. So we grabbed our baseball bats, and, you know, almost like clockwork, this thing starts howling outside, this 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 whistle type of howl, and uh, we went out to investigate it. And in the back of our, our, our yard was uh, a, a pretty dense wooded area, and um, we got close to whatever it was because you could actually feel the sound that it was making reverberating. It, it was that kind of very deep in our body type of uh, uh, rumbling going on. Um, but when we came close enough to whatever it was, and we never saw what it was, but when we came close, the thing began to growl at us. But to the point that you could actually hear it taking in air in order to make this very guttural, snarling sound. But was what was so um, frightening about the whole thing is the whistling, howling sound was going on at the same time. Um, so we both, you know, we, we both ran back to our house. We, you know, we were terrified. So that was my first brush uh, with the unknown. And then the other time was I was doing a dogman sighting, um, and um, what appeared to be um, uh, static electricity um, started to flash around us. And I turned back, and look, this was a very desolate area, by the way. There was not a, the nearest house is probably three or four miles away. And we looked back the path from which we came, and what what appeared to be a flare um, lit up and suddenly trickled off. Uh, so we went to go to that because we assumed that it, there was a person out there, um, and, but there was nobody there whatsoever. And um, I actually called out, and something called my name back. Uh, and whatever called my name, it actually emanated from a cemetery that sat up on a promontory that was overlooking this area where we were located. Um, and after my name was called, the, my, the name came off uh, from the left. And as after my name was called on the right, something began to tra to follow us as we were walking. And um, we could hear it snarling at us. And this is where my research comes into the play that something was projected onto us. Because I was with another researcher. Um, after the event, we both wanted to separate rooms, and we kind of um, debriefed everybody on what we saw. And we both came up with the same thing. Neither one of us saw anything. But we could tell that it was a bipedal creature. Uh, we could tell that it had these kind of yellow glowing eyes. We could tell that it had, you know, sharp teeth, and we could tell that it was actually stalking us. Now, we did not see anything. Uh, did we know that instinctually? You know, was that part of the fight-or-fight response? You know, what was going on there? I have no idea. But I do feel strongly that whatever was, was shadowing us that evening was able to project what it wanted to into our, into our 
perception. Right, right. Um, the skeptic... Oh, here, there's the music. We'll um, pick this up on the other side. Ronald L. Murphy Jr. will be a featured speaker at HillCon, September 22nd at the Hillview Manor's Paranormal Convention uh, down in Pennsylvania. HauntedHillViewManor.com, the website, if you're interested in grabbing a ticket and heading on down there. We'll pick this up on the other side. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Ronald Murphy Jr. is with us. You've also written on vampires. And uh, I was recently uh, speaking at a conference uh, up here in Ontario called Occulticon. And uh, a woman came up to me after my my, uh, presentation and asked me what my take on vampires was. And uh, I said, well, do you mean sort of this subculture of people who, you know, they, they have all the trappings of, of being a vampire. They, they buy the, the, uh, the porcelain teeth or they actually have their teeth filed uh, and they, maybe they have an aversion to light. They actually partake in, you know, drinking blood, all consensual, of course. She goes, no, I mean actual vampires. And she talks about, you know, on the dark web that you can find these... People who claim that they are, you know, descended from a long line of actual vampires. What is your what is your take on that, Ronald? Um, well, again, that's a very uh, interesting uh, uh, question. I think you know a lot of people have asked me the same way, uh, the same thing. Do vampires exist? And of course, I say definitely because people do um, associate themselves and identify themselves with vampires. But we're talking about something that you know this thing, this, this drive to stay alive from the uh, taking of human blood. Um, again, throughout history, there are many instances where it seems to be that there were human-like creatures uh, that that did feast on on blood. Um, or at least were believed to feast on blood. That's the important thing. Um, also, some certain cryptids may be responsible for this as well, too. Uh, some of the vampire lore deals with um, uh, creatures that come out of caves, you know, hair-covered creatures that appear to be almost like small baboons or what some people colloquially call in the southern United States hell monkeys. Uh, in Greece in particular, there was uh, this, this belief and these vampire creatures that would come out at certain times of the year out of these, you know, these caves to feast upon um, the living. So I think that we're dealing with a lot of different things here. Um, I have investigated vampires uh, in New England, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of vampire graves in New England, and it even says on some of the gravestones, vampire. Um, but what the, the evidence is, the preponderance of the evidence shows, is that these people were the unfortunate victims of tuberculosis. Um, you know, one particular case of, uh, of uh, Mercy Brown, um, she was actually believed to be a vampire. Uh, the father and some townspeople dug her up, uh, you know, found out that she still had some blood in her, 
um, took out her heart and burned it, and had uh, their sixth son drink of it. Now, he eventually died of tuberculosis, but, I mean, this, this happened, and this is a mind-boggling to think about this. This happened in 1892. Uh, so we're not talking about ancient history here. You know, professional baseball was already being played at this point. So we're not talking about, like, the Dark Ages. That's right. Betty White uh, had a, a thriving career. <laughs> uh, I was going to point out that my uh, my uh, great-grandmother was actually born in 1890. You know, and I knew her as a child. Uh, but that's absolutely the case, getting to that point. Right, but, but, um, but what's the yeah. connection, then, Connect the dots between tuberculosis and vampirism. Um, well, it, it appears, well, they call it consumption because it appears that it's something what's consuming the body. You know, each day you were getting progressively weaker, and then you would start coughing up, and sometimes your, 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 uh, your spit would have blood in it. You know, so it was a very peculiar type of death. Uh, and it came on quite suddenly. So you could be healthy one day, and then you started to get gradually, gradually worn down. And, you know, you would eventually, you would eventually succumb to this disease. Um, and it was a thriving disease uh, throughout the New England area, you know, from Connecticut the whole way up to Maine. From Connecticut the whole way up to Maine, you could find vampire graves as well. Um, but, um, you know, it was just a very ghastly type of thing. Uh, medical science really didn't know how to deal with it until relatively recently. So it was just not a pleasant way to die. And whenever, it was kind of like the plague. Whenever you caught it, members of your family were going to get it too. It's almost inevitable. And you were looking for a way to cure it. Uh, and if you know, if, if science couldn't cure it and your prayers couldn't cure it, then you're going to start seeking out the old ways, the superstition ways. And you have to understand that, you know, America was the, 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 the land of, you know, of refugees from all around the world. So they would pull in some of these ancient folk ways uh, to try to, to combat what was in their midst. Well, I, I understand if you succumb to tuberculosis, how one might think, okay, that person was, you know, uh, becoming very anemic, like they were being drained of their blood. So maybe they were a victim of a vampire. But how then do you connect someone who has tuberculosis with being the vampire? That's, that, that is the step. That's exactly right. So um, what happened with the Brown case um, is that the mother had died first. And then Mercy had contracted it, then she passed away, then her brother Edmund got it. I could never make the connection why they didn't dig up the mother's grave. It never came to me. Um, but it seems that, that Mercy died very, very suddenly, and her grave was readily available. We're talking about a very brutal winter whenever this happened, so of course the corpse was well maintained. It was almost in, in refrigeration type of state uh, at this time, even though this was 1892, it was still, you know, very well preserved. And I think it was just a perfect storm why they came to her, that her her grave was just there, you know, she, was just, she just died and came upon it. But, um, you know, that is one of those curious cases. And, and the reason why we keep on coming back to Mercy Brown is because it really had an impact on the psyche of America and actually the world. Bram Stoker may have named um, uh, his character in, in his Dracula, Mina, 
after Mercy because of that, you know, that similarity in sounding name. So it really made an impact, and, and certainly Bram Stoker did know this story. So a lot of it probably did go into his, you know, his creation of these characters. But uh, yeah, that and I was asked that I, I spoke at uh, the Ocean State Paracon last year uh, on this various subject up in uh, Rhode Island, and I, again, somebody asked that question: Why did they pick on Poor Mercy? And the only um, the only response that I could have is because you know her grave was readily available. But I think that you know we're talking about at this point. Um, a, a family that is craving answers, and they're go- going to seek out the answers any which way they can. And it's almost like a mindless type of thing. They're going out there kind of like a vendetta against whatever's going on. And they assume that it was something evil taking over their community, at, kind of like the Salem witch, witch hunt, you know, that, that happened, uh, you know, two, 200 years before this case. Right. Um, that it was just, you know, this kind of mob mentality and out they went. All right, Ronald, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. I want to uh, pick your brain about the, the Highgate vampire incident in London back in the late 1960s. And uh, we'll do that right after this. Ronald Murphy Jr. will be uh, a speaker at the Hillcon Paranormal Convention. That's September 22nd at uh, Hillview Manor in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. It is time to redefine reality. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Ronald L. Murphy is with us. Uh, the Highgate Vampire episode back in the 1960s, late 1960s. I mean, this gripped, I think it's East London. Uh, the people were, they were just going crazy. There were people, it was like right out of the, the movies, like a hammer film. People with torches jumping over the, the cemetery gate trying to, to f- hunt this vampire. What do you make of that incident? Uh, and I think that this is a good segue from what we just talked about, poor Mercy Brown up there uh, in the New England states. Um, it was that mob mentality, wasn't it? Now, the Highgate Vampire began with uh, a group of uh, paranormal enthusiasts uh, deciding to spend the night uh, in a cemetery, and, you know, they saw something gray. Originally, it wasn't called a vampire. Originally, it was called, I believe it was called a specter, if I'm not mistaken, or a ghost. It was something ghostly, definitely, but not a vampire. But what happened was uh, a local tabloid um, kind of insinuated that it might have been a vampire, and then there was reports that, you know, the coffin from the 1700s of somebody from Romania was buried there, and he may be the king of the vampires, and it starts taking on a life of its own. So we see very easily how things can spread in the media and around towns and things. Uh, so then, you know, the idea that Satanists were playing a part in this, they were raising the dead, there was black magic being performed, this actually really did uh, cause a uh, response by the citizens of that area to, like you had said, pitchforks and and, and, and torches and breaking down gates to go on a hunt for Empire. And we're talking about, you know, this is a time after the Beatles had already invaded America. So we're talking about a very modern type of event here. This isn't the ancient past. This is a relatively new thing. 
Right. And but were there not animals found in the cemetery that had been exsanguinated? Uh, and and uh, there was also a woman who lived on the I guess the the the, the periphery or the border of the, the cemetery who claimed that she had been attacked. And there was there's also the report of possibly finding a charred remains of a headless woman. Absolutely. Now, whenever it gets to the idea of the animals, uh, the animals being drained of blood, I do feel that that was a part of some sort of black magic ritual or some sort of satanic ritual that was uh, that was done in that particular area because of the legend and not vice versa. You know, it, it, it kind of uh, was was carried out because this was the place to do it. This was a place of evil when, you know, this evil had to be appeased. I think that, that was going on. Now, there are very many anecdotal things as well, but as, as somebody that studies, you know, uh, as a folklorist, I could not find any corroborating evidence about an actual death in any of the contemporary papers. Now, what is interesting is that in Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, not very far from where Hillcon's going to be, and not, not very far from Niagara Falls and all that good stuff, but um, there is actually the mausoleum of a believed vampire up there as well. And this happens, you know, in the, uh, the late 1800s, whenever, you know, these group of boys decided they were going to spend the night in the cemetery, and there's, you know, the, the, the figure of something rising out of the grave, and pretty soon the people on the periphery of the town is shown up with their blood drained. Again, no reports in the newspapers regarding all this. This is all nothing more than folklore. It makes for a great story, uh, but people to this very day still go to see the grave of this believed vampire in Erie, Pennsylvania. Where is the most haunted location uh, in Pennsylvania for your money? Um, you know, people would say Gettysburg. You know, uh, 51,000 people died uh, over, you know, a couple-day period. Uh, I have been uh, in that area only one time and never as an investigator. I investigate uh, going back about 100 years before that into the French and Indian War. That's one of my favorite subjects in history. It's really what made America what it is today. You know, you think about um, you know, how uh, we, we got our future president and how we, we decided to um, split away from England. This was all during this particular uh, tumultuous period. Now, we have within, you know, a stone's throw from where I'm at, we have about four or five major battles that occurred in the French and Indian War. And these are sites that are not memorialized in any way. These are sites that are nothing more than open fields now. And with that kind of, you know, hidden history behind it, these deaths that meant so much that are kind of been forgotten. Um, I, I wrote a book on ghosts as well, and I, and, I, and I said in there that ghosts are the bookmarks to history. And I do believe that in, in all honesty. You know, it kind of really tells you that there was a human being here and they need to be heard and i think sometimes whenever the story is not being heard you know certain you know voices will rise up from the ether if you will uh to make themselves known and i think that that's what's happening in my neck of the woods and why this place is so haunted do you collect evps electronic voice phenomena uh, you know what I, I I do I do go out. Um, I told you that one time, whenever my name was being called from the cemetery, um, I we were videotaping it the entire time. We did get the strange light anomalies, but no sound whatsoever. So that was a very eerie thing. 
you know, my, myself and my partner both heard our my name being called, but it was recorded. Um, I do use it. I've never got what would be called a Class A EVP. I've heard a lot of people with ones that sound as if something was speaking right into the microphone, uh, but then I've heard uh, a few other ones that sound like you had to really, really take it apart to figure out what was going on. I do put credence into it. Uh, I'm not a tech guy, uh, so to speak. You know, I'm, I'm not one of those guys that really am comfortable around electronics, but, uh, you know, I do utilize it as a tool, of course. What do you make of the argument that um, the, the association between ghosts and old buildings, and it has to do with black mold, that a continued exposure to black mold, which thrives in older structures, can cause hallucinations and so forth? Uh, you know, I, I will look at any and all um, arguments, uh, even the idea of ergot up there for the uh, mass uh, uh, hysteria involving the witches up in Salem, Massachusetts, which was one of the things that was blamed. Um, the idea of of uh, black mold in certain buildings may be coincidental, you know, but, but, but what are you going to do whenever outside spaces are supposedly haunted? Or, you know, burial mounds in England and Scotland and Ireland are, are haunted, and these natural environments are haunted. That's a little bit more difficult. And then we talk about, you know, ghost sightings at sea, like the Flying Dutchman and other type of, of ghostly ships, you know. It, it seems to transcend just buildings. Although I'm sure that there was times that people could move into a place that, you know, is, is, is falling apart and things. And I'm sure that, that could influence them. Some people, of course. But, you know, that's in only in slight cases. And no way should that rule out every single sighting uh, throughout history. Uh, Michael Shermer, the, uh, the, the skeptic or debunker, says that, that all paranormal, the, the fate of the paranormal is to become normal once we expand our horizon of understanding. And that is that, that uh, you know, eventually we, we'll find out what all this is about. Do you subscribe to that, that there is nothing supernatural in the world or nothing paranormal? It's just something we haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> well, I am a man, you know, I'm a religious man. I, I believe that miracles are possible. And science really doesn't have a way to... Um, explain away miracles. Science likes to be able to explain away things because if you explain something or if you name something, you have control over it. I'm not that kind of narcissistic uh, guy. Um, I think that there are things out there that cannot be explained. I believe that there's things out there that are subjected to experiences, and I really like that. I like that there's mysteries out there. I like that there's things that go bump in the night. And I like the idea that humanity cannot rustle everything and cage everything and pin things down uh, neatly. I like that idea. And I think that there are things out there that can never be explained away. These great mysteries, uh, because we did explain all things away then we, we've lost a part of our humanity that I am so fascinated with, this, this, this curiosity of things that, you know, lie in this kind of twilight area between uh, the light and the dark. And, 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 I, and, I, and I trust that science will never be able to, uh, to categorize and explain everything away. And more importantly, I'll be out of a job. <laughs> and what would I write on? That's absolutely the case. Look, every time I write or every time I do a radio show where I conduct my own interviews, at the end of the day, you're always left with more 
question marks. And the reason why shows are on like you do, and I, and I will have to tell you, this is truly one of the best shows I've ever been on, and I always enjoy to have a host that is so knowledgeable like yourself. These are great forums because people really have not only experiences, but they have questions. You know, they, they, they're, they're wanting to know what happens or what happened to them, and they want to really talk to uh, a listening ear. And I'm glad that you're on here doing this kind of, uh, kind of a service for these folks because there are a lot of mysteries out there, and I'm happy to be one of those people that is, you know, uh, wading through all this stuff with you. Well, what's interesting is, you know, if you go into a room at a party, let's say there are 25 people in the room, uh, you know, they're not going to open up about it. But over time, I mean, the odds are most of those people will have had some sort of an experience. Uh, you know, it might be the, a straight-laced uh, um, skeptical accountant uh, or, you know, someone in the, from the medical profession, um, you know, a hardened person of science uh, who, who doesn't believe in anything that they can't see, touch, feel, or smell. But it's, it's, um, it's, it never ceases to amaze me. Um, over time, once you gain people's trust, how many of them, or, or if they feel the need to sort of unburden themselves, how many people will, will actually confess to have having had some sort of a paranormal experience? That's absolutely the case. Absolutely. They're looking for somebody. It's almost like a, a confessional. They're looking for somebody to listen to what they have to say. And, uh, and that is why I'm such an ardent believer in my friend. That's the reason why I keep looking. It's not these little two little anecdotal experiences that I've had and through all my research. It's dealing with people, just like you said, you know, they'll come up to your table at a conference or someplace that you're at and say, you don't believe this stuff, do you? And then, you know, you kind of go into it and they walk away and they come back a few minutes later and they tell you about their experience and tears come to their eyes and they're visibly shaking because they're finally able to talk about something that happened to them to somebody that will not laugh and somebody that will understand. It's true. It's, it's, it's the big elephant in the room, uh, and uh, <laughs> nobody feels comfortable talking about it. Uh, Ronald, this has been uh, a great pleasure. Again, we should point out the HillCon Paranormal Convention happening uh, September the 22nd. Uh, Hillview Manor in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, and um, uh, again, September 22nd, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m., speakers, vendors, tours, entertainment, food, you'll be there. Uh, our guest next week, uh, is it David Spinks? Will be, uh, will be here. He'll be a speaker there as well, I believe. Do you know David? That is correct. Yes, sir, he will. Terrific. All right, my friend. Thank you so much, Ronald. All right, my prayers for you guys up there in Toronto, okay? Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, my thanks uh, to Ian and Faz. Welcome aboard, Faz. He'll be working with us next week. Do you play guitar? Yes, you do. All right, good. It's, it's a prerequisite. If you are going to sit in that chair, you must be accomplished on a, uh, on a guitar. Uh, my thanks to Ian and Albert and Ryan. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.